Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello, uh, welcome to uh, this edition of the uh, War Room podcast, uh, coming to you from the U.S. Army War College. My name is uh, Daryl Driver. I'm the Director of European Studies Program here at the Army War College, and I am joined today by Dr. Mitchell Ornstein, who is Professor and Chair of Russian and East European Studies at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Dr. uh, Ornstein joins the uh, War Room today to talk about hybrid war in Russia, which is the topic of his latest book, uh, due out in April timeframe, I believe, uh, The Lands in Between Russia versus the West and the New Politics of the Hybrid hybrid War. Uh, Welcome to the uh, War Room, Mitchell. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I wonder if we might start by, uh, instead of me sort of going through introductions, is asking you maybe to tell us a little bit about yourself and especially how you came to this particular subject of hybrid war and its relationship with uh, the Russian Federation. Absolutely. So it, it really started, I was a professor at Johns Hopkins University, SICE, that's a school of advanced international studies, starting in around 2007. And at around that time was the Russo-Georgian War broke out. And for me, that was a really big shift in... Uh, U.S.-Russia relations and European-Russian relations because I think it was the first time that, uh, well, I mean, in a long time that Russia had uh, invaded another country and one that was having trying to have close relations with NATO and really sought in a sort of a kinetic way to, to stop the advance of, of NATO throughout the uh, former Soviet states. And at the time, I worked with a former U.S. ambassador to Czechoslovakia, Adrian Besora, who's become my colleague at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. And we, we organized a conference together in um, on democratic backsliding and, and, you know, sort of the the issue that, that Russia appeared to be uh, trying to influence countries in its near neighborhood to prevent them from becoming more democratic and more affiliated with the West. And so it was that involvement, I think, in the D.C. policy community that really brought me around to thinking about these issues. Very good. I, I guess I'm trying to think of what's the best way to dive into this, and maybe one way to do it would be to talk a little bit in terms of what we discuss with the students here a lot, and that's terms of uh, ends. What, what, what's Russia trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. Ways? How, how are they trying to achieve it? And what research do they have to actually achieve it? That ends ways means um, sort of analysis framework. And uh, so, if we could start, what, mm-hmm. what is what is Putin hope to achieve? I mean, there's a couple narratives out there. One is this sort of realist narrative that he's really responding to a security dilemma he's, mm-hmm. uh, with the expansion of the European Union and NATO. Mm-hmm. Another one is that maybe the European Union in particular, but the West in general, represented sort of transparency and rule of law that mm-hmm. is fundamentally antithetical to the Russian regime. But what, what comes across in your book as to what the motivations are? I think that I think that I'm um, largely with the realist camp, although I think that there's a lot of things going on. And, and one of the interesting things about the Putin regime it appears to me that we have uh, not as not as much intelligence as we should have for for a country that's been outed as um, you know having the cell phones bugged for you know every single European leader. The one who we don't have seemingly is is Vladimir Putin, and uh, I think we need still need to know a little bit more. 
But I think, and there, there are a number of important debates and issues around that. In other words, is he really a fascist? You know, for instance, there's people like um, Timothy Snyder uh, are arguing that he's kind of in the sway of these this Russian um, nationalist fascist tradition. There's others who, you know, who see him as a pragmatist, um, just trying to get a job done, et cetera, and trying to uh, increase uh, Russia's power, but the way the way I typically would see it is is through the lens of great power politics. I think that Russia feels um, has felt under Putin that it was marginalized out of European affairs. Uh, it was treated as largely a defeated power after the Cold War, uh, and and told that it shouldn't really have a legitimate uh, sphere of influence in Europe. And for a time, Russia was really on the back foot and didn't have any ability to establish itself or a sphere of influence in Europe. But Putin, I think, um, at the end of the day, what he really wants is to restructure European relationships from away from an EU-based Europe, which is rules-based, and towards a great power Europe in which would be more transactionally based and in which Russia would have a very, very large role to play. And so I think that that he realized that the EU Europe was not functional for Russia. Russia could never really join the EU because it isn't a democracy, it isn't a market economy. And uh, that if this EU was gone and Europe was restructured in a way similar to after the Napoleonic Wars, where there was a kind of Congress Europe of the main leaders of the major countries meeting periodically to kind of hash out what the security interests of the continent would be, that Russia would have a place at the table and might have a primary place at the table. In other words, might be able to really structure how relationships happen. And I, th I think you see that uh, attitude reflected in a lot of the means and the ways that Russia behaves. Well, speaking of that, so if this is what, you know, the goal at the end of the mm -hmm. day really is, a sort of concert of Europe, a return to it in, in, in either case, how, how has Russia gone about it? How would you describe, you, you call it hybrid war, we've heard gray zone, we've mm -hmm. heard conflict, you know, competition below conflict. How would you describe the tactics? Well, I think, uh, I think there's a wide range. So that, that's the first thing I would say is that there has been a lot of attention to certain aspects of what's going on and less attention to other aspects. Uh, so I would say to start with in general that Russia has a very, very large toolbox that it's using to try and influence affairs in Europe. And uh, I think it is fair to characterize it overall as being sort of a hybrid um, structure mm -hmm. because of not primarily using kinetic means. However, it's also important to recognize that they do use kinetic means, right? right? There is a war going on in Ukraine uh, right now. Um, there also is uh, f common, frequent uh, threats of uh, nuclear warfare. Uh, emanating out of Russia, right? So they're constantly trying to remind us that we have all these fancy new nuclear weapons, that uh, your missile shields, you know, won't really be able to stop this or that uh, thing from happening. So I think, and, and there's, as you know, overflights, right, that are occurring of ships in the Mediterranean or uh, over the Baltics. Uh, even the U.S. and Canadian airspace, British airspace, is being regularly tested by, um, by Russia. So there is a kinetic element to it, but I I think it's fair to say that that kinetic element is posed as more of a threat um, and is not the primary way in which they're operating, right? The primary methods in which they're operating are probably more like um, through diplomacy, through intelligence, through secret operations, through um, using agents of influence, through uh, media, social media, 
um, you know, kind of influence campaigns and uh, a variety of, and, and also paying off political parties, which has been a huge part of their influence right. in Europe uh, and, and most likely in the United States as well, as I think we're going to learn over the next several months. So I think there's um, a kind of a wide range of things that they're doing and also really persuasion in a way of trying to persuade people that it's in their best interests to, uh, to really um, do what Russia wants and move towards more of a great power politics. I think you also see this in Russian diplomacy in that if you think about how Russia's tried to approach the West in a couple of different aspects, um, most notably the Ukraine conflict, Russia is very, very happy with what's called the Normandy format, uh, where essentially Russia negotiates with uh, the presidents of France and the chancellor of Germany and uh, the UK has not wanted to participate in this, so they, but they would like the Prime Minister of the UK to be involved, the President of the United States, in a way that really mimics what I was talking about before, that great power Congress politics, right? right. They want the issues of the day to be sorted out uh, by the great powers among themselves, essentially. And, um, and that's advantageous for Russia because they see themselves as a great power essentially. Um, it's less advantageous, obviously, for smaller powers like Ukraine. You wouldn't necessarily think to invite the Polish prime minister right, to a meeting like that. Right. Um, and, and that was the sort of downfall, I think. It's important to talk about this because I think a lot of people find this method rather attractive, right? I mean, the attractions of a great power concert are that you avoid conflict by communication, right? We sit down, we make a deal, over the heads of others. It may be a corrupt deal. There may be money that changes hands. There may be deals. There may be, um, you know, you take care of this problem. But the issue um, of that type of great power politics has always been in Europe that it disadvantages the smaller states. So in, in the Congress Europe, the problems that they have were the Polish nationalism, right? So Poland wanted to have their own nation state. But so periodically, somebody had to go in and you know, and and shoot down whatever insurrection was happening. And sometimes the Russians would do it. Sometimes, you know, the Germans, it was all divided up. Or the Italians, right, wanted their own nation state. And, um, and periodically different armies had to kind of roll in there and, you know, prevent them from doing things. The problem with that arrangement was that these smaller nations in Europe, although they seem strategically unimportant, are actually proved to be the tinderboxes of Europe. In 1914, the spark that started the First World War was a Serbian nationalist who launched a bomb, threw a bomb into the um, into the carriage of the Grand uh, Duke of um, of Austria-Hungary, the Habsburg Empire, Ferdinand, and eventually blew him up or killed him or shot him. I can't remember exactly, but that was the spark, you know, that uh, because Russia had an alliance with Serbia and Serbia was aggrieved against um, Austria-Hungary, that was the spark. And others, France had an agreement, you know, that was what set these things off. So, um, and think about the Second World War as well. It wasn't, um, it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't the great powers fighting each other, actually, that caused the Second World War. It was Russia and Germany dividing up Poland. Again, that is the spark that um, brought other powers into the, into the conflict. So in Europe, what you have now in the European Union is an arrangement where both the great powers and the small powers are all represented. That's the brilliance of the European Union as a strategic device. And you could say of NATO, which I know you've been connected with. Um, 
those two institutions that conjointly manage the security situation in Europe are great because they uh, represent great power interests to a large extent. The U.S. is highly represented in NATO as the preeminent actor. And yet the smaller powers in these organizations also have a seat at the table, are also informed about the decisions, and also have important input into the decisions. If they feel that their security interests are threatened, they can get a hearing on those issues. And so that makes has made, from our point of view, Europe's European security much more secure. Right. <laughs> Europe has been much more secure by taking in, into account the interests of these smaller actors, which is why I believe the Europeans and the Americans are not very interested in this Russian great power strategy. And when they propose it, as they did, for instance, um, in the Medvedev proposals, which came in 2008, um, they seem very confusing to people in the West. We don't understand. Medvedev um, proposed in 2008, which I think was a legitimate proposal. He said, look, we want to have a get rid of NATO and have a new security structure in Europe where all nations can kind of meet together, including Russia and others, and sort out problems. You know, And people in, in the West, I think, looked at that and said, I don't understand what he's talking about, right? What is that? It doesn't look very institutional, right? The differences are that, as we uh, have been talking about, NATO is a very institutional structure. It has a set of institutions where, and committees where all the nations are represented and get to discuss these things. And what Medvedev proposed appeared not to have any institutional structure to speak of and was just a series of periodic meetings in which um, different countries would come together and talk. Now, in those meetings, the reality is that it wouldn't be the small countries who would have a voice. It would be the large countries. I believe that was always the intent of those of those things. It was What it was really saying was like, get rid of NATO. We'll just have Russia, France, Germany, Britain, U.S., and maybe whoever else is specifically concerned in a particular issue come together and sort it out in an informal arrangement. That's the kind of security mm. structure they wanted. And I just think it's, from our point of view, totally unworkable. It's it's not worked in the past. Um, it's catastrophically failed several times in the past in ways that brought the United States into uh, wars in Europe. And we have no interest, I think, in, in doing that. And yet, from the Russian point of view, that seems like the only real solution um, to security problems. So in essence, yes. Um, so, yes, there's a security dilemma in a way. You know, that's a good way, good sure. metaphor for this. Um, but it's probably more the case that their security approach overall is just totally incompatible with what we see as the key security approach for Europe. And as a result, um, we have conflict. We have a, a fundamental conflict over the structure of security in Europe. And it doesn't appear to be getting resolved. And Russia has decided to push its side very, very uh, vigorously through a hybrid war campaign that's having real effects on um, on the West and the politics of the West. That's a good place, I think, for the next question, because having established kind of you know where you see Russia going and how you see them trying to achieve that and why it's so incompatible with their own interests, you use the term in the title of your book, Lands in Between. I think you mean to say that... Um, that there's good evidence for how these things work if we just look into Eastern Europe and what Russia, Soviets previously mm -hmm. have done there to sort of see what that playbook looks like. I wonder if you might talk a little bit about that playbook and some of the cases perhaps that you, you might have explored. Absolutely. I mean, the, the first premise of my book, The Lands in Between, 
um, is to talk about those countries in between the European Union and Russia, the small, poor countries that have suffered really a lot in the last decades, including Ukraine and Moldova, um, as well as, say, Georgia, um, Azerbaijan, etc., uh, and talk about how um, the sad, upsetting, bizarre, Byzantine politics of those countries has increasingly become our politics as well, has become relevant to West Europeans and also to Americans, because the patterns of the politics and the patterns of the problems that they're facing there have become our problems. So the book ends, um, talks a lot about the lands in between, but it ends by saying we're all lands in between, in the sense that we're all uh, subject to this increasing geopolitical confrontation between Russia and the West um, that is forcing certain things to happen in our politics. So. To begin with, um, with Moldova, I'm going to tell you a little anecdote about Moldova that sounds really strange, but increasingly is kind of should be recognizable as something that that might happen in in the U.S. as well or France. So in Moldova, it's a small poor country. Its um, biggest oligarch there, um, who made his uh, millions in very shady ways, according to a lot of people, is a man named Vladimir Plahotniuk. And Plotnyuk is really interesting character. He um, he's the head of the Democratic Party in uh, Moldova, which is facing a tough election coming up in February, and is he's the head of the largest EU pro EU pro Western party in Moldova. Okay, so um, the EU channels money to him, you know, uh, or you know maybe not intentionally, but. It's, it's said that he steals a lot of the EU funds, structural funds coming into the country um, and generates a lot of business in general out of, um, out of the EU and the United States for that matter. He's visited both Brussels and Washington in recent years, and he's seen as a firm ally of the West. What's interesting about Plautniuk is he's also rumored to have close relations with the biggest pro-Russia party in the country, um, the Socialist Party. Um, who helped his party um, to sort of wrangle some type of constitutional change that would basically facilitate them uh, doing better in the elections that are coming up. And also, his big one of his big businesses is he runs um, two TV channels in Moldova that regularly broadcast. Their, their main broadcast is they rebroadcast Russian TV channels with all their propaganda, right? At the same time that he calls for ending Russian propaganda in Moldova, right? And you look at that as an American and think, well, what is going on there? That's a really strange circumstance. How do you have a person who is pro-EU and pro-Russia, right? Or he's really committed to a pro-EU point of view, but his business is making money off Russian propaganda, distribution of Russian propaganda. And the answer is that in, um, in small states in Europe, it's always a good position, or it, it's a tradition, a political tradition to be accommodators, right? In international relations speak, right? Mm -hmm. You have two big warring parties kind of fighting over your heads, these big giants, right? The EU, the West, Russia. And you're small and you're regularly stamped on throughout your history. By the way, Moldova is the only country that was actually founded on the basis of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact in Europe. And um, they're regularly subject to these problems. It's a good idea to have relation, good relations with both sides, right? It's smart. It's just 
simple. It's called small country uh, politics, right? So as close, and I can give numerous examples, as close as you are to the West, right? And all the people who are our interlocutors are also um, trying to find ways to be useful to the Russians in, in, in many cases, let's say. So what's interesting, what I found interesting in, in these countries is that although the conflict between the two sides has polarized politics, and we talk about polarization in our country too, but in these countries it's very, very severe, right, where there's a lot of people who are running pro-EU parties who see the future of their country as being inextricably tied up with the EU. If they don't get into the EU or they're prevented from having close economic relations with the EU, their country is going to suffer economically and their own life chances and that of their families and that of their you know children is going to be bad all right and then there's and and so they hate russian influence right for that reason then you have another group of people who think you know what we were better off under the soviet union we have these strong close ties with russia we speak russian it's easy to go to russia and get a job uh, we share a common culture. The West kind of really looks down on us and doesn't really think very much of us and doesn't really understand us or our concerns. And we would rather be part of the Eurasian Union, right, than part of the European Union. So politics is, and and I can say that when I was recently in Moldova and I was trying to talk to people on the Russian, pro-Russian side of the spectrum, they would treat me as a U.S. professor as being something short of like nuclear waste, right? Like they didn't want to be seen in the same room with me, essentially. So politics is very, very divided in these countries. At the same time, as I mentioned before, paradoxically, who rises to the top in those societies are politicians who are able to play both sides. And that's a tough concept, I think, for Americans to grasp because we we like to think more linearly about things, right? But the reality is if you have two people, two big powers willing to uh, do a lot to keep you on side, the richest person in the country is going to be the one who figures out how to get paid off by both sides, right? And that's, in fact, what's happened in Moldova. And I can give you lots of other examples from lots of other countries, not only those countries and lands in between, but also in Central and Eastern Europe. Right. So just to give a couple other examples, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. Um, Viktor Orban is started his career as a democratic politician. He's seen as very pro-Western. He's a member, he's the leader of an EU state and a NATO state. And yet he has very, very close relations with Russia um, that have been very troubling to a lot of people. Um, so he was involved in, he has the Russians involved in a very big nuclear power plant financing um, that seemed to be highly corrupt. It, it, it probably isn't the only corrupt deal. <laughs> that he has going with the Russians. But um, he also has positioned Hungary to be a hub on different pipeline projects that have not yet come to fruition uh, coming via the Russian side. So it's clear that he sees, and he said in his public statements that, you know, if, if you want to run Europe, it's not going to, you, you need Russian energy. You need Russian gas. And, you need, and anybody who thinks otherwise is just a lunatic, essentially. And so he wants to be, you know, so you can look at somebody like that and say, oh, this guy's a Russian agent, right? But you could also look at that and say, this guy is somebody who gets his bread buttered on both sides, right? That he's um, he's somebody who understands that he needs to do certain things to be in with the EU, which he has done. Interestingly, paradoxically, the more he tips towards Russia, 
the more valuable he is to keep on side to the EU. And the European People's Party, which is the conservative party within the European Parliament, bringing together a variety of, of uh, right-wing parties, um, sees him as extremely valuable, maybe extra valuable, because um, they have his patronage on their side. And anything he does to threaten to sort of move out of the EU or uh, go towards Russia makes him that much more valuable to keep on side. Right. Right. So he's... Um, He's able to, so far, really play both sides of this. I mean, the EU complains about him from time to time, but his relationship with the Conservative Party in Europe has dampened um, those concerns. He's been able to um, move away from democracy pretty conservatively in Hungary without incurring very much um, criticism from within the European Union. No censure, no taking away of structural funds, all of which they would would be worried about pushing him more into the Russian side, which is definitely there. He's definitely getting payoffs um, out of Russia as well. So I guess the, um, you know, um, one could go on and on and on about this. In fact, one could go on and on about this in the United States. This is about to become the United States political drama as well, right, of politicians who um, who, uh, are not necessarily, who, who are, you know, leading positions in U.S. politics who also see it um, as convenient to sort of be in bed with the Russians. Right. Uh, so if that's the, and, and sort of on that ominous note, I would just ask maybe for a bit of a sort of an upbeat note to come next is, yeah. so what do we do about it? I mean, yeah. so watch the European <laughs> Union together with NATO, the U.S. I mean, what, what do you think would be sort of plausible steps that could be taken to, to, to combat some of this? Um, what do you do about it? I think I think the first step is awareness. I think, um, as you know, in our own politics, um, a lot of people refuse to be aware of these issues, um, don't want to think that uh, Russia influenced the 2016 election in the United States, don't want to think that their representative, in fact, got money from the Russians via um, different channels, which the channels into the U.S., by the way, were most likely the National Rifle Association um, and also many other means. Right. <laughs> right. Lots of secret operatives, the Boutinas, you know, running around channeling money here and there. So I think the first step that the United States is going to have to take, and probably other West European nations as well, is airing the dirty laundry, right? We're going to have to know exactly where the money went, who it went to, and take account of what. Um, those individuals who were recipients of that money thought about or knew about when they were doing it. Maybe in some cases they didn't even know about it. If I were a congressman, I got a donation from the NRA, I might not have known that the money came from Russia. But if somebody did know, we need to know that. And I think that's really important because I think the U.S. has um, had a really good investigation with the Mueller investigation. I think Mueller is somebody who people trust uh, both on the Republican and Democratic side. And I think he's doing an honest investigation. I follow also UK politics. Right. And UK has had a very interesting problem where they have not seriously investigated, or rather they have not publicly made um, clear the results of their investigation into Russian financing of the Brexit campaign because the government's committed to Brexit and doesn't want to raise a huge scandal in a very delicate situation. And so I would see that as a negative um, case where there's some some Western nations that are investigating this stuff and you're going to get the dirty laundry out in public. And there are others who are trying to sweep it under the rug. So I think the first thing is we have a long way to go 
in demonstrating exactly what happened and taking account of what happened. The second thing I think is that um, knowing that um, is is really getting the public involved and uh, being aware um, that these things were happening, right? And um, I think beyond that, um, the reality is that um, many institutions in the West have uh, wanted for various reasons to hide these relationships and have therefore um, not taken very basic steps they could take to guard against Russian influence. And that's happened, unfortunately, in the U.S. as well. Right. That they're they're pretty simple. The, the good news is, if you want good news out of this story, the good news is there's a bunch of pretty simple steps to deal with this. <laughs> the bad news is we choose not to take these simple steps because of politics, essentially. So the, the, good, the good news is that, look, if you're facing influence operations, we've faced these in the past. These, you know, we can deal with it, you know, partly through campaign finance changes. Uh, we may need to move towards public financing of elections in the United States. We can move towards uh, better voting records, voting machines. We can also um, run counter-influence uh, campaigns that may persuade certain countries to uh, stop doing what they're doing to such an extent. Um, we have right now, as far as I understand, $120 million of funding in the State Department for this kind of purpose that the administration has decided not to spend. Right? We have programs in the works that the administration has decided not to launch um, because of um, our president's you know, particular relationship to Russia. So I think that, um, that I'm pretty sanguine myself um, that the United States will, and other West European countries can get through these problems um, because the problems in a way are not as, um, they're not as difficult in some ways as the problems of kinetic warfare, right? Um, so people aren't being killed, lives destroyed, right, in the same sort of way. Um, I think that, um, that in the information space, the U.S. should have a predominant role. Um, we have English as a world language. We have an ability to control information flows and to, to influence what public debate is that's very, very powerful, um, big media organizations. And we need to start using those um, to, uh, to deal with the problems that we face. Well, thank you, Mitchell. It's been, I think, almost 20 years since we first met. You were junior faculty at Syracuse University, and I was a young, well, I say younger uh, graduate student at the time. But uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me here today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.